Hello and welcome to So What You're Saying Is, I'm Peter Whittle. Now I'm delighted uh, that this week my guest is someone who's been on the show a number of times before and indeed has been one of our most popular guests and rightly so. Douglas Murray, the author and journalist and the author of The Strange Death of Europe and after that The Madness of Crowds, has a new book coming out this week which is called The War on the West. His previous two books sold hundreds of thousands of copies and were translated into various different languages. He's known, I'm sure, obviously, to all of you. Um, thank you very much for joining us, uh, Douglas. Uh, you're actually in New York at the moment, aren't you? I am. Um, it's a great pleasure to join you, uh, and you wish you were able to do it in person. Great. How is New York at the moment? You know, it's great. Coming back, uh, um, like London, you know, we all had fears for it. Yes. Uh, um, but it's coming back. Uh, you know, it's. Uh, I always say there are, there are basically two cities in the world everyone uh, comes through at some point in their lives, London and New York. Yeah. And uh, I don't think that's ever going to change. I hope it's yeah. not. Um, Douglas, the new book, uh, The War on the West. Um, can I start by asking you, uh, I think it's a point that actually you make in the book. Um, which is essential reading, um, that essentially when we talk about culture wars and when we talk about, you know, woke ideology, that these things are really rather inadequate to describe what has actually been happening. You're so right. I'm so glad you say that because I don't want anyone to misunderstand this. Um, what I'm describing is not about wokeness. It's not about... Um, you know, gender pronouns or any here today, gone tomorrow, cultural war. Yeah. It is my best attempt to explain the deep undercurrent of what is actually going on in our societies in the West, to try to lay out as soberly and as clearly as possible the incredible depth of the assault that has been going on in our lifetimes on our societies, and it cannot be exaggerated. I don't exaggerate it. I, I, I give example after example in area after area, but I want people to understand that what I'm describing is, as you know from having read it, um, a, a, a cultural revolution that has gone on in our lives. And if I could sum it up in one way, it would be this. It's a cultural revolution that has meant that we have moved in a couple of generations from being in the West in societies which were broadly proud of themselves, had faith in themselves, had um, a sense of pride in their accomplishments and a sense of gratitude of being born in such a place. In our lifetimes, certainly over the course of the last two generations, that has been completely inverted. So that what we are living in at the moment is the X-ray opposite of that. Yeah. That we are told that we have nothing to be proud of. Mm. That we in the West are born in sin. Unique sin. The rest of the world is born into Eden. The, we are told that white people are particularly uh, to be blamed. That white people, uniquely of all races, must be from the cradle regarded as being complicit in appalling atrocity. We're told that we have no heroes. 
we're told we have no culture other than culture that we've stolen or appropriated, to use one of the terms. Everything in our history, in our past and present, has been ransacked, has been transformed into this light of absolute and utter negativity to persuade us that the West is worst. And I think that nobody can understand any of the comparatively frivolous things that are going on in our time without starting from there. That we have been encouraged to love everything so long as we didn't have any hand in yeah. producing it. We've been urged to revel in every tradition apart from the one we've been gifted. It is uh, extraordinary. And I wondered, Douglas, you, you said for two generations, I would completely concur with that. It, we've, we've become used to it. It's almost like uh, we feel it's the natural order of things, you know, yes. um, to, to feel this way and behave this way. One thing I, I wanted to ask, particularly those over the past couple of years, um, particularly in 2020, what struck me was the sheer speed with which the various assaults on the various institutions, say in, in Britain and indeed in America, happened. And it's almost like they were on some kind of starting block. Um, and then after sort of George Floyd, for example, it was almost like yes. it, it, it was like a lighting a touch paper. And it was almost like it was a kind of opportunity to put into action something that had been boiling away for a while. I mean, does that sound about right? Absolutely, absolutely accurate. Absolutely. Um, it, it had been boiling away. It had been boiling away in academia yeah. since the 70s. Things like critical race theory that a lot of people have heard about had been on the fringes of academia. It had, as I explain in the book, um, it had had plenty of moments in the cultural mainstream. I mean, I don't like to only talk about academics because sometimes you can overestimate the impact of academics. Popular culture, in a way, is a much better example of it. Um, I give an example from the early 2000s, a book, Stupid White Men, by the documentary maker um, Michael Moore. Um, impossible to think of a book. Uh, title Stupid Black Men. Um, uh, uh, and quite rightly, uh, there's a chapter, Blame Whitey, again. Impossible to think of the opposite. Uh, Michael Moore just says everything that's everything that's bad in human history, you can trace it back to white people. I mean, he's never heard of most of human history, clearly. He's as ignorant as he looks. Um, but but this 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 had become part of the culture. This idea that you could sort of uniquely beat up on white people, mm -hmm. for instance. You could you could start to say things about white people. You just we don't rightly don't say about any other race. Mm -hmm. People were racist about other people in the past. There is some residual racism today. Um, but but the only group of people you can just constantly insult for their skin color are white people now in the West. And um, that's been brewing up. But yes, you're right. It, it was it was it, it was waiting for a moment. And the George Floyd uh, killing was definitely such a moment. There were several reasons for that. Uh, one was that we were all in our solitudes, of course, forced by our governments to remain inside our houses and unable to see uh, um, our nearest and dearest, unable to meet friends, unable to sit in the pub and talk and 
chat with people and try things out or have live events where people experiment ideas and said, no, I think you're wrong on that. I think that we had already this isolation, which meant we'd lost all of our social antennae. And then suddenly this movement, Black Lives Matter and others said, you're allowed to just kill black people in the United States of America. And I think most people had a moment of, even people like, like us who know America, like, is that possible? Can you do that really? Policemen just have the right to go and kill people on the streets if they're black? Of course the answer is no, absolutely not. Not least because the policeman who killed George Floyd uh, uh, responsible for his death is, um, is serving a life sentence in prison. Um, but as I say in the book, uh, this was used as a way to claim that America, in America in the 21st century, uh, black lives are so unimportant that black people can just be killed at any point. Yeah. And that's just a total fabrication. And I give the actual statistics of what the realities are in this and what the realities of policing in America are in a heavily armed society. Mm. Um, and they're nothing like most people think. The statistics show that the public uh, view is totally wrong. Mm. But as I say in the book, we have this magic lantern-like effect where anything that happens in America why we fight over the details is that everything that happens in America, if you get even one of the tiny details wrong, because of the light that is behind America, when it's projected onto the wall of the world, even a tiny uh, misapprehension, a misrepresentation in that model, when blown up on the world, becomes gargantuan and grotesque and appalling. And we have been persuaded in Britain to fall for this, not just that it's a truth of American life, which it isn't, but that it's a truth of British life. And that was, as you rightly say, Peter, the, the, the moment where the revolution could go mainstream mm. and did. Mm. It's then that people like the mayor of London, Sadiq Khan, decide that they have their moment to set up their Robespierrean committees on not the public virtue. What was it? The committee on the representation in the in the of history in the public realm, some yes. other, some similarly uh, easy to trip off the tongue uh, committee. And he appoints a group of people who all clearly in different ways hate Britain to decide what our history should be. Include the man who in Westminster Abbey uh, uh, insulted and screamed abuse at the Queen and others, and then threatened to punch a black, as it happened, security guard escorting him out. The perfect figure for Sadiq Khan to appoint to a committee to decide what my history and your history and our nation's history is, or what it should be, who should be remembered and who should not. It's at that moment that people seize their opportunity to make the cultural revolution go mainstream. Yes, uh, in fact, they were quite quite open about it, Douglas. I mean, with that particular commission of Sadiq Khan's, uh, they said, uh, you know, this will decide which legacies we can celebrate, we should celebrate. Quite open about it. The, the yeah. problem with these all these institutions um, across British society, but pretty much it's the same in America, is that um, they essentially... Well, it was like kicking an open door, wasn't it? I mean, this wasn't coming actually from outside. It was sort of coming from inside. I mean, you know, again, this is this sense. It brings me to this point, really. 
Do you think, when you talk about a revolutionary thing that's been going on and that this was a, a moment for it to go mainstream, do you think that this is actually Marxist in nature? I mean, in a kind of Gramscian way, because um, it would appear to be so, you know, like institutions having been hollowed out for decades. But it is in part. Um, I don't think it should be seen as the sole explanation for it. I think there's a, a nascent movement. I think you could say that uh, um, a um, completely reasonable, non-conspiratorial view of it would be that we had a period of empire in the post-colonial period uh, is arguably, I mean, you could say we're still in it. I don't think we are by any means. Well, that's way out of date. You could say that we're, we're still in it and therefore we're trying to litigate the colonial era and that slavery is being litigated because we didn't before. I mean, that that would be like one very generous steel-manning interpretation of what has been happening. Mm -hmm. Of course, it ignores the fact that this country um, debated, got beyond this a long, long time yeah. ago now, that America fought a bloody civil war over yeah. slavery more, you know, two centuries ago. I mean, it's wildly historically inaccurate. Yes and unfair to make that claim. But th that could be a claim that some people would make, is, is we haven't really had the reckoning on that yet, and that's what we're doing. Uh, I think that's uh, misguided, but I think some people do actually think that, mainly because they don't know about anything that happened before the day they were born. Um, but, and not much after that. Um, but, but anyway, the, the point is, that yes, there are certain signs, uh, and I, you know, I give some examples in the book, of the sort of other deep, underlays of, of what is challenging us on this. I give the example, as you know, of the way in which every Western philosopher has now been pulled down, just as there's been an assault on our religious tradition in the West, the Judeo-Christian tradition, and an endless um, subservience to anything that's Islamic, for instance, as we've discussed before, and I've written about at length, um, just as, as we've had that assault on the Judeo-Christian religion, so we've had an assault on our secular tradition in the West. And that's one way you can see that this is a totalistic war on everything that the West has produced. They, they war on the Western secular tra traditions and the Western religious traditions. Um, every Enlightenment philosopher has now been taken down, sometimes quite literally from their plinths, because they lived in an era in which colonialism was going on. They didn't write enough against racism or they once said something that we now regard as racist. And I say in the book, great, let's apply this across the board. Let's apply it to one of the one of the clearest philosophers who was racist, Karl Marx. <laughs> and as you know, and I had such fun. <laughs> yeah. Karl Marx's letters to Engels are filled with racist epithets. The N-word, endlessly used, often linked uh, to the word Jew. Uh, He's profoundly racist against black people in his published writings as well as his private ones. Mm -hmm. David Hume, the great Scottish philosopher of the Enlightenment, is currently cancelled and has had his name prized off buildings in his native Scotland because of one footnote in one of his essays. Karl Marx remains completely easy to cite and nobody cares that he was a racist by our modern standards and the most that anyone can say about this is, well, he was a man of his time, mm. to which one can say, who is yeah. it? And then, and I've had this in recent days, 
some of the Marxists say, well, we don't go to him for his personal things. We go to him for his economic theory. Well, the same thing with David Hume, yes, exactly. same thing with Thomas Jefferson. We don't go to Thomas Jefferson for advice on how to get slaves. No. We look to Thomas Jefferson for a great example of human bravery and, and extraordinary brilliance and, 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 and helping to come up with the most successful society in history, the United States of America. Um, so you see in moments like this what, yes, you rightly say is, is a Marxist undercurrent. It's one of the undercurrents. I don't think it's the only one, but I'm so pleased you cite it because it is, it is absolutely evident in, in that example of what they don't want to critique. Yeah. You mentioned there, you know, men being men of their time, times, but, you know, the whole movement has kind of gone lateral, hasn't it? So, you know, you talk in the book, because the book is actually in sections, isn't it? You cover race, you cover culture, religion. Um, and I was very struck by a, a section on classical music, where I think mm. America has seen a particular attack on classical music. But um, the mere fact that uh, Mozart and Beethoven were writing at a time where there, there was slavery, this is enough to somehow mm -hmm. paint there was a kind of expression of white supremacy. Yes. Now, yes, I, I mean, yeah. yes. They're trying to, they're, they're doing, I mean, there's a performance of Beethoven's Ninth in America the other day where they got a black rapper to rewrite the words of the last uh, right. movement um, and uh, completely mauled the whole thing mm. because you just have to, because you can't do a straight up performance of Beethoven Nine no, no. because of whiteness. Douglas, you, you, you say, you know, this is a strain. The Marxist thing is certainly an undercurrent of strain. Do you think that there is any element of cultural envy in any of this? Uh, in which direction? Well, for example, for the achievements of, of Western civilization. Oh. oh, sure. I mean, one of the things I've started realizing as this book has started to come out is, is the deep discomfort that many people have about some of the truths that I described. Uh, I say at one point in the book, as you know, that there was certainly, you just mentioned classical music. For um, there is a reason why the Western notation system exists. There's a system of Western musical notation. Um, and there is a reason why it is used worldwide. Mm. It's not because it's white or was invented by white people. It's not because it came from the West. It's because it works. Because in music, you need to be able to chart time and pitch. Mm. And it is true that there are systems of notation in China and India they've come up with. But the one that works the best is the Western system of notation, which, by the way, at no less a university than Oxford University, there are attempts to get away, to do away with because it's white. Mm. Okay, Oxford University's own music faculty. Again, none of this is about fringe movements. It's all at all of our sensual mm. cultural and educational institutions and at the heart of all of our governments where we have to have diversity, inclusion and uh, equity instilled across the civil service. But just to return to this with Oxford and notation, the, the argument of certain um, professors is that the Western notation system no longer needs to be taught because it's a product of white men. Flat out wrong. It works. And the way you can prove it works, among other things, is when, as I say in the book, Benjamin Britten goes to Bali, he notates the gamelan music he hears and which he reveres. Again, I hate this 
talk of cultural appropriation, most of the history of Western culture has been one of cultural admiration yeah, of other yeah, societies. Yeah. It's not us stealing, it's, it's, it's artists paying tribute to what they've discovered, reveling in it, wanting to share it. Um, so anyhow, but Britain writes the gamelan music down using the Western notation system and plays it back and, and everyone is sort of amazed and, and pleased. The opposite cannot happen. It would not happen. If you played a piece of Benjamin Britten's to uh, uh, um, somebody who wanted to use an Indian or Chinese music system, uh, notation system, and then asked them to play it back using that, it would sound nothing like what you had just been played. If you played a, a Mahler symphony to somebody using anything other than the Western notation system, they, what would or Beethoven nine, what would come back at you would not be anything like what you've just heard. It it's there because it works, and it's the same with the scientific method which the West came up with, which is being currently done away with. And I give examples and after examples in the book, and the Western system of mathematics, which is currently being done away with. It's it happens to have come about. In the case of mathematics, multiple cultures contributed to it, including uh, Islamic culture, Arabic culture. But the, the Western system of mathematics, as it has evolved, like the Western scientific method, we have it and the world has taken it, not because it's white or was come up with by white people, but because it works. Mm. The, same, the same with uh, uh, free market economics. The same thing with so many things that are currently being destroyed. Mm. But you say, uh, um, you say, Peter, just to come back to that central point, you say, is there some kind of envy? Here, here's what I think has been going on. Um, Western people have, have lost the ability to say things like I've just said, mm. because they fear the consequences of saying them. We have been, as I say, towards the end of the book, in a period of politeness. The period of politeness involves Western peoples, even if they know that or prefer the Western tradition to say other traditions. Mm. Um, if the, whether I mean, we obviously prefer our political tradition. Mm. I, I mean, I, 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 I don't know how many people actively would like to live in the Chinese Communist Party's dictatorship mm. and think that that's a better system. Mm. They may think in the abstract, some of them, well, it does this, that, and the other. Oh, yeah. Do you want to live in it? Would you like to be one of the people in Hong Kong who's had to end up submitting to it, having known a period of freedom? Um, so so, so we, we recognize that things in our systems work better. And yet we have become incapable of saying yes. so because we fear what that means. So we're being polite. We've had this period of politeness where... You know, to give an obvious example, uh, if you're going to try to say something wise or come to a wise conclusion, you know, you could use Immanuel Kant, but it would be better if you could use a Native American tribes leader. Um, I give the example of uh, Naomi Klein doing this in hilariously awful work she wrote, uh, where, you know, she ends up quoting a, to a set of total banalities mm. by an American uh, First Nations uh, uh, tri tribal leader. Mm. Why does she do it? Even Naomi Klein can't actually think this thing she's quoting is interesting, but it's who's doing the saying that matters. Mm. 
And this is part of the whole trend I'm describing, that the thing is best if it's not from our tradition. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and we flatter other traditions. And I think it's partly that, again, this self-distrust we've talked about before, that if we were to say, well, I just think this is better, like the Western system of democracy and the peaceful, you know, peaceful handover of power, for instance. I mean, you know, there are plenty of societies that don't have that and haven't had that historically. Mm. It's a pretty amazing thing, a pretty central thing that our societies in the West have managed to achieve. Um, it's better. It's better than other systems, for sure. Much better than clubbing your neighbors over the head and taking their stuff, mm. which has also been part of the Western past. But we've come to this place, but we don't have the confidence. We don't want to say that we think it's better. We just sort of say it's different. And then we go from different to other things are better, so long as they're not ours. Actually, I think one, uh, one of the bravest part, I do think extraordinarily brave of you, actually, dogs is along those lines where at one point in the book, without giving too much of the book away, uh, you talk about a possible answer that could be given by journalist Christopher Rufo. Um, mm. And he's asked something along these lines, what is so great about, I think it's what is so great about being white, I think he's, he's asked. White. Yes, white. Yes. And uh, I can't remember quite what he said, but it was essentially rather trying to, you know, be evasive, because he obviously it was a yes. trap, it was a trap. Um, it was a trap. It was a trap. Um, but you sort of say, you know, there was the nuclear op option in a way where you yes. could actually start to say, well, this yes. is you, this is good, that's good, that's um, It's extraordinary. Yeah. When I read that, I sort of, you know, when you sort of, I felt, my goodness, you know, uh, someone is actually saying this, uh, something which actually should be perfectly sayable. Yes. Yes, I, I'm so glad, pleased you say that. I, I, as you know, with my books, I always try not to just take us one step further ahead, yes. but take a sort of jump, you know. I like, to, I like to think of book writing as me putting my boots on and taking a great jump into the unknown. <laughs> uh, and, um, um, so I, I'm glad you, you, you mentioned this because one of the things which, you know, I knew I had to tackle in this book, there was just no way around it, was what I describe as the war on white people. Now, even saying that, as I say, is mm. something which mm. a lot of people just, you mm. know, a bristle at or immediately start sweating profusely. Yeah. Uh, there's, no, there's no way of avoiding this issue. Uh, prominent uh, um, race hucksters, who are again not fringe figures, like Robin D'Angelo, the author of White Fragility, mm or the man who calls himself Ibram X. Kendi, the author of How to Be an Anti-Racist, who also wrote a book explaining how babies can be anti-racist, which includes at the age of two, I think, you're meant to explain to babies that policies, not people, are the problem. Yeah. Good luck dealing with a two-year-old and trying to describe that, maniac. Anyhow. Um, but, uh, but, but these, these people, these people have said completely openly, there is no good form of whiteness. Robin D'Angelo, who happens to be white herself, says this in White Fragility, says there's no good form of whiteness. Um, and here's the writer, you can't opt out. Right. You can't opt out of being white and it's all bad. Now. I completely reject this. Yeah. And I think it's high time that people did. 
Uh, I think that these so-called anti-racists are the real racists of our time. I've had enough of them. And I think it's time that people started to speak out against them as well. Um, uh, it is a wicked, wicked thing to do to say to any group of people that they are born into some particular evil, yeah. Yeah. a unique evil, and that no one else is, and that they are evil from the cradle, and they will never and should never be able to escape it. Mm -hmm. I think that is a wicked thing to do. It would be a wicked thing to do it to, to do to black people. It would be a wicked thing to do to people from the Indian subcontinent, from China, or anywhere else. And it's wicked to do it to white people. But it's the one form of this which we allow. Other racisms were allowed in the past, but today it's this one racism that is permissible. And that's not to say that different racisms don't exist, but the only one yeah. which gets you positively wafted up in your society in 2022 is if you are an anti-white bigot. Mm -hmm. And as I say, these people are very mainstream figures. Ibram X. Kendi has a position at Boston University now, only previously held, a chair only previously held by the Holocaust survivor and Nobel Prize winner Elie Wiesel. So these figures have pumped racism against white people into our systems. And I very much fear what comes next. Now, one thing that could come next is white people saying, fine. Uh, you're willing to talk about us like that, we'll do it to you. Yeah. That would be a disastrous mm -hmm. conclusion to come to. And as I've, I've said a few times publicly before, I see elements of that. I see elements of it in, for instance, the reinvigoration of interest in the differentials of IQ between races. Mm -hmm. That's effectively a tool which some white people and others are starting to play with as a very big stick to try to whack back where they think it'll hurt the people who are currently racially abusing them. So you can see the outline delineations of a sort of white backlash. That, of course, is not what I'm advocating. What I'm advocating is a return to a, or indeed an arrival at, a reasonable estimation of ourselves. And that's what, in the example I, I give that you mentioned, uh, Chris Rufo, a distinguished scholar in America who's written extensively on critical race theory, was on a, uh, a platform with uh, an American um, black commentator called Mark Lamont Hill, who said, what is there that's good about being white to Chris Rufo? And you're right, Chris Rufo sort of dodged it, quite understandably, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, didn't realize that his, his sort of career-ending question. Said, I don't really like to think in these terms. I say there are various ways you can answer that question. One is to say, I don't like thinking in those terms and I'm not going to. I mean, after all, I don't know about you, but I'm fairly confident that you, like me, when you were born and brought up, didn't think of yourself as white no. and didn't no. think, no. you know, I, or, you know, if somebody said, who are you? You said, well, I'm a white person. No. I mean, no. uh, and it wasn't just because it was um, more, it was that the white people were in the cultural majority. It was just that we were, told not to think in those terms or sort of just accrued the fact that we didn't think in those terms whether we ever had in the past we don't now we didn't yeah. in the late 20th century the early 21st century so that was one way to say i just don't like thinking in those terms another way was for rufo to say um the effectively whiteness is like like europe is a sort of united nations you know the whole world can be part of it that's what i described in the strange death of europe that uh, that effectively whiteness as it's being described there is a sort of Anyone can be it, sort of thing, mm -hmm. uh, another thing. And, and another option, 
as I say, is the nuclear option, which is just, because you see, Mark Lamont Hill goaded Chris Rufo. He said, well, I can tell you what I like about being black. And he says rather stereotypical things as it happens, you know, the sense of community and the music and things. Mm -hmm. Crikey. Mm -hmm. Glad it wasn't a white person saying that about black people. Yes, exactly. Um, um, uh, it's not far from, you know, wonderful sense of yeah. rhythm. Um, and uh, so, so Mark Lamont Hill says, he says, but I can identify all these things I like about being black. So why can't you identify anything you like about being white? And I say, well, there is an answer you could give to that, which again, not to give away all of it, but is, is increased to say, well, actually, it, um, I don't like being asked to think in these terms, but if you're going to force me to, I suppose I'll have to say the following. Mm -hmm. And that includes that I'm the inheritor of the following traditions. Yeah the following accomplishments, yeah. following things. Um, there is a reason why when a global pandemic breaks out, we do not go to First Nations people or Aboriginal communities in Australia and ask them for help in creating vaccines. There is a reason why when we want to send a rocket to the moon or to Mars, nobody goes to find Inuit wisdom to help launch. Okay, we've been polite about yeah. some of this, but we know the facts. And none of this is to say that therefore white people are superior or people of the West are superior by their nature. But it's to say this is a system that has worked. The reason we have political harmony which again, I mean, it doesn't feel like it to many people, but I can assure them that historically speaking, what we have in countries like Britain is, is political yeah, harmony. Yeah. You know, we don't, we, we, we solve problems at the ballot box mm. finally. Mm. You know, we don't, as I say, club our neighbors to death. Um, so I say there is this answer that people have not been willing to give, but which I think they may have to give at some point um, because Otherwise, um, white people in particular are invited to spend their lives um, apologizing for things that we didn't do, um, made to feel guilt for things we had no connection with. And, and I'm not willing to do that. Absolutely not willing to do that. I have no historical guilt. I did nothing in the slave trade. I did nothing in the colonial era. And I resent the tendency in our time to pretend that I have to do some kind of bowing down yes, for that. Yes, yes. No, I mean, this is, uh, we've actually, um, uh, Doug has just had our first conference here, actually, uh, and, and the theme of it was, in fact, believing in Britain and the West. And, and what, what's clear to me is that people feel these things. Um, they want to know, in some ways, what to do. You know, they, they, they want to know. To, and I suppose I, just what I was sort of saying is, look, you know, find out about your own history, essentially, you know. Yeah. You, you can't really rely on schools or whatever anymore. So do that mm. and teach your children and teach your children about it. Um, I want to ask one thing. Uh, we're talking about, when you say the West, okay, Europe, of course, but this has been um, most, most sort of acute, this attack in America, in Britain, Australia, increasingly, Canada. And I'm... I just yeah. wonder, do you think it's also, Douglas, the sort of inevitable 
result of considerable demographic change. Uh, you know, that when you have demographics changing in the way that they, and indeed, of course, mm. in Europe, as you wrote about in Stranger, could you sort of say, well, this sort of is inevitable. One culture is basically being forced out, you know, or, or rather it, it's being devalued because there is no real interest in it from, you know, the growing demographic. Yeah. I, th I think it's definitely a very significant um, element in it. Um, uh, you know, try, try saying what is said about Britain in any other non-English speaking country and see how you yeah, get on. Yeah, yeah. I wrote recently in one of the newspapers about uh, some absolute fool I'd never heard of before who turns out to present an incredibly unpopular show on LBC. Yes, yes. yes. Um, and she, in this weird racist tirade against the British mm. people, said, we're not such a great country, actually. We're not a good country. We're not, no one really wants to come here. And, and us trying to turn people away is just us cutting off our nose to spite our stupid racist faces. Mm. I invite her, mm. if I could remember her eminently forgettable name, to go to any other country and mm. tell them they have stupid racist faces. Mm. Uh, it is just she's incredible. damn lucky to be saying that in Britain, I tell yeah. her. She's damn lucky to be saying that in Britain because it's evidence of our tolerance as a country that we put up with that sort of mm. thing, mm. that sort of maligning, malignant insult. Mm. Um, I'd have had a few things to say to her, I can tell you, if I'd have been on her show or ever heard of it. Um, but but this is this is totally commonplace mm. and in part i think it has come about because of demographic change that's true i think that the the the, the one of the reasons why the english speaking nations are particularly vulnerable to it is because we are all to some extent downstream from american yeah, culture yeah, yeah, you know yeah. as i say the blm yeah. thing starts in america it has very little connection to anything to have that happens in britain mm. but immediately we get british blm uh, on the streets, uh, tearing at Churchill's statue, uh, assaulting the cenotaph to the war dead in Whitehall, mm. and deriding our precious little monuments, mm. as, as one protest mm. is called. Mm. Um, that's what you get. Oh, let's also remember, whilst we're at it, Sasha Johnson, who hasn't been mentioned for some time, the BLM leader in Oxford, yeah. who, who infamously said, we don't want to be equals, we want white people to be our slaves. Mm -hmm. Sasha Johnson was a classic example of a race beta, um, exacerbated anti-white hatred in the UK, was shot in the head in South London. And uh, immediately, politicians, including Diane Abbott, pretended she'd been shot for her political activism. Yes. And it turned out, of course, that the men arrested for shooting her were from a gang in the area, a black gang, mm. who went into the house party that this wonderful mother was at at two or three o'clock in the morning in South London and, and shot at the party. Mm. But there's nothing that they can't try to push the sort of race agenda onto, including black on black shootings in London. Mm. So this is a lot of this is just us being downstream um, from uh, American culture. Um, but yes, the, the, the question is well, what I describe as politeness. You're, you're right to focus on the demographic thing because the politeness happens on the international level, but also on the national mm -hmm. level. On the day-to-day -day interactions with people, we sense that it would be politer and kinder if, for instance, we meet somebody who's from Afghanistan, uh, and uh, we talk with them. We, it's not polite to say, you know, there's a reason you're here, mate. Mm. 
and that you know millions of white people haven't moved to the tribal areas of Afghanistan or Pakistan. Yeah, there's a, there's a very obvious reason, isn't there? I mean, there is an obvious reason. I mean, I know people like to talk about colonialism, but actually not very many white Westerners wanted to go and settle in Pakistan after independence mm, mm, mm. because it's not a very nice country to live in. Mm. There's a very good reason why millions of people from the area wanted to move from countries like Bangladesh to, and Pakistan uh, uh, to uh, Britain and, and other Western countries mm. because it works better here. Yeah. But we sense that it would be very, rather rude to say that. And it sort of would be. So we're polite and we say things like, what a rich culture you have there. And that's not, you know, that's not entirely untrue. There's rich cultures everywhere around the world. But we have our culture yeah, yeah. and we have our inheritance. And I see no reason at all why we have to pretend that we don't or pretend that it's awful or anything else, simply in order to be polite. Looking, I mean, looking towards the future, Douglas, I, I remember uh, it was in two thousand and. 16, President Trump in Warsaw, I think, Warsaw, mm. um, said the central question of our time is, does the will, uh, West have the will to survive? Mm. Um, I wonder whether you see any calls for new hope, you know, after what we've seen happening, for example, with Ukraine, um, in the sense that on a practical level, the West has seemed to come together Right. Mm. Um, but also people have been taken aback, have they not, by um, the sight of uh, men staying at home to fight and uh, the women right. leaving, things like this. Um, and utter uh, love of country, all of those qualities. And perhaps that might give us the kick in the pants we need. Or, or do you think? It's possible. Um, uh... I mean, I think that, you know, can't be said enough that the, the people fleeing Ukraine mm. have principally been women mm. and children yes. and men of non-fighting age. Yes. By the way, that's exactly the opposite of the 2015 migration crisis into Europe, where the women and children were left at home and the majority of people coming were young yeah. men of fighting yeah, age. Yeah. So, so I have absolutely zero tolerance for that equivalence mm. and for the people saying, oh, you're keener to take in Ukrainian refugees than you were people who pretended to be Syrians in 2015, and mm. a, a small proportion of them were, most of them weren't. Um, so yes, I think there's been enormous admiration across the West for the way in which Ukrainians, actually men and women, uh, have been fighting for their country. Um, and there's always that question, of course, of whether or not we would do the mm. same. Um, I wrote about this recently in The Telegraph when a poll came out showing that actually a near majority of Americans asked if they would fight for, stay and fight for their country were something similar to happen in America, said that they would not, they would flee. And that's very, very telling. Yeah. But of course, completely understandable. Uh, of course, this included more Democrats and Republican voters. Um, it's completely understandable because, I mean, if America was invaded, I don't know who quite who would invade it, but... Um, um, why would you stay and fight for a country you'd been told was racist mm. from its beginnings mm. and evil from its beginnings? Don't forget, again, this is not a fringe thing. It's the New York Times, the so-called paper of record um, that set up the 1619 yeah. project, which said that the aim of the project was to reframe and recast the founding date of America to 1619, which was the date that the first slaves were brought into the continent. Um, so if you've been told that actually your nation 
was not a not not born in a heroic leap of independence, but was born centuries earlier when when slavery first came, and you're of course nobody in America anymore in Britain knows that uh, the slave trade was happening absolutely everywhere in the world at the time. And, and of course, was a bigger slave trade went east of, uh, as I write about in the book, much bigger slave trade was Africans um, being traded east to the Arab countries. Why are there no descendants? Because the Arabs castrated every black male yes. that arrived. Yeah in order to make sure they didn't have any descendants. Yeah. And by the way, still in Arab countries, the word abid is used um, slave as the term for black right, people. I remember, yeah. That's, that's mm. still the, the term used. Okay, so, but if you were an American wondering whether to, to defend your country, if you were hypothetically invaded, why would you, if you were born, your, your founding was slavery, you had, alleged white supremacy racism inherent from the beginning. Um, uh, the Civil War didn't really happen. Uh, um, that uh, you had nothing good to say about yourselves in the 20th century. That all of your founding fathers were appalling. That your heroes from the North and the South were equally bad in the Civil War. That Abraham Lincoln was nothing. Well, I mean, you know, what exactly would you be fighting for? The people who express themselves willing to fight for America, I would guarantee are the people who think that America has done something good generally in its past. Yeah, yeah. Otherwise, there's no damn reason not to flee for Canada. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's the same with Britain. Yeah. I explain this in the book. Why do they come for Churchill? Because they want to deeply, yeah. deeply demoralize us in yeah. Britain. They want to say you have no heroes. They've taken away everybody else because they were born or lived in the era of slavery. They've ignored the fact that our country got rid of slavery uniquely among civilizations and then policed the high seas at enormous costs of blood and treasure to try to stamp it out across the globe. We ignore all of that. We have no heroes left until the 20th century. Then we have the on the greatest heroes in British history, and they've decided to deride Winston Churchill as a coward and a racist mm, and an imperialist mm, mm. and accuse him of all sorts of things he didn't do. Mm, mm. And again, I lay this out in detail. Why do they do it? Because they want to demoralize the British. They want to say you have nothing. Mm. Now, here's the thing. Historically speaking, we have been in a bit of that before. And this is why there isn't the reason not to be downhearted. Uh, you are aware of the famous Oxford Union debate in 1934, yeah. 34, 33, 34, uh, where the, the famous king and country debate at the Oxford yeah. Union. Um, uh, and the king and country debate at the Oxford Union was infamously, you know, would, this house would, would not fight, would an, under no circumstances fight for king and country. And the house voted by a significant majority yeah. to approve that motion. Of course, I mean, if you read the leader, the leader pages in the newspapers of the time and, you know, and everything, I mean, the country exploded in rage at this defeat, pampered generation of Oxford students um, who, who wouldn't take arms, take up arms to defend king and country. And you could say, of course, that since they had grown up in the aftermath of the Great War and seen a whole generation scythed down, that they would have reasons to be anti-war. But here's the thing that people forget about that story, of course, that the people in the Oxford Union that night who said that under no circumstances would they ever fight for king and country were precisely the generation who went to yes, do that yes. only a few years yeah, later. Yes. So you never quite know what you might be capable mm. of as a society or as an individual. But here's something you can say with total um, clarity. Mm. 
there is no reason to defend a society that has nothing good to be said about it. And that is a deliberate thing that has been foisted upon us in recent years, and we have to foist it back on the people who've been claiming it. We have every reason to feel pride in what has happened in our societies. We have every right to say, this may not be your culture or your preference, but it is ours. Mm. We have every right to do that. Other societies do, other groups do, and we have that right too. So what I very much hope is that I can help with this book, arm people to know better mm. the arguments and the facts, they're just the facts mm. that are needed to push back against the people who are trying to pull down everything yes. in our yes. society. Yes. Well, Douglas, I, you know, I think obviously it's going to be a brilliant success, your book. Um, I see it, and I, this is in totally spurious uh, opinion, but I sort of see it as being a kind of part of a trilogy, actually. You know, um, mm -hmm. it, it, you know there, the themes go. The themes absolutely go together, um, mm. and so all the very best for it, um, Douglas. And um, you know, I think that that's a wonderful interview you've given. Thank you very, very much indeed. Um, and um, the book is out, ladies and gentlemen. The book is yes. out in two days' time. I think on the twenty eighth of April. Um, and is that what? If you can find a bookshop, there are some bookshops that already have it in Oh, it. really? Oh, right. Yes. Okay. So, um, um, uh, um, order early and often is my all advice. Right. There you go. Um, <laughs> all right. Well, look, thanks very much indeed for joining us, Douglas. Thank you. It's been a huge pleasure. Thank you. Uh, that's it for this week. So, what you're saying is, and um, we should look forward to seeing you next week. Thank you. Hello. If you're enjoying the New Culture Forum channel and you believe in our mission, may I invite you to join our membership scheme at the link below or on our website, newcultureforum.org.uk. Our work is more important now than ever, and we have great plans ahead for the future, but we can't do it without your support. From as little as £3 per month, you can help ensure that we continue on our mission. As a member, you'll receive a range of benefits, including access to exclusive content, invitations to our private events, including here at our studios, free copies of our books, and much, much more, including, of course, our famous NCF mug. If you aren't able to become a member, then please help us by clicking this button and subscribing to our channel. It's completely free. Just remember, to also click the bell icon so that you can get notifications when we post new videos. Thank you.